You're listening to the Psalms for Sojourners podcast, in which we look at the Psalms as prayers for God's people on every occasion. We hope it's a blessing to you. Hi, and thanks for listening to another episode of Psalms for Sojourners, a Sojourn Montrose podcast in which we explore the Psalms as prayers for God's people on every occasion. Uh, This week, I was joined by Pastor Reed Squires, who I work with at Sojourn Montrose, to discuss Psalm 78, uh, which is a really interesting um, psalm. It stands out from the rest of the Psalter in that it is a song and a history of Israel. Um, It's a, a song that records the history of Israel in a really meaningful and beautiful way um, with a a rhythmic theme of God remembering his people even though they forget him or abandon him or rebel against him. And so Reed and I discuss why Psalm 78 matters, um, how it can inform the way that we think about God and the way that we think about our history as Christians, our individual testimony, and the history of the church. Um, Overall, I found it to be uh, a really helpful discussion, and I hope you do too. Uh, Thanks for listening. Well, I'm here with uh, Pastor Reed Squires of Sojourn Montrose. Reed, it's good to have you. Good to be back. Yeah, this is, what, your second or third time on? It's my second time being interviewed, and there's one other time where I interviewed you. That's right. So it's my so third, it's time, third on time on the podcast. podcast, second time as a guest. Um, and this week, I think that we will have a relatively short podcast, even though we will have uh, one of the longer psalms in the, the entire Psalter. Uh, you wanted to talk about Psalm 78 uh, today, and so just kind of even before we read it or jump in, uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about why you wanted to discuss that psalm and and give like an overview of what the psalm is, because it's a little different than the rest in the Psalter. Sure, yeah. Psalm 78 is a historical psalm. It it recounts um, the events of, of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, um, and how God has consistently been merciful and um, and hating of sin uh, towards those people. So it recounts basically all of these great deeds and miraculous events that have happened to the people of Israel and their their disbelief and how God has continued to kind of pursue them throughout despite their disbelief. Um, so it talks a lot about rebellion and God's wrath towards sin and things like that. But it's a really long psalm because there's a lot of history that it unpacks. But it's just cool to think about um, a people singing. This was a sung psalm, as many of them, if not all of them are, um, to think of them singing their history in a way that doesn't paint them uh, in a great picture. So I think of us as Americans in the West and how we sing our patriotic songs are about how beautiful our country is and how uh, brave our people are. And those things might be true in a lot of ways. Um, but the the people of Israel in Psalm 78 don't do that. They The psalm is mainly about how uh, how merciful God has been towards them and in pursuing them, despite how uh, how persistently 
um, unrighteous and rebellious and arrogant they've been as a people. And so it's a song that they sung um, to remember. And the first couple of verses um, give you their direct reasoning for writing this psalm, which is helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, and I, I think that is helpful. And I think that the the connection you made there between the sort of songs that like most nations of the world sing are they're patriotic and self-aggrandizing. Like we are this great people. We're a prosperous people. We're an industrious people. We've been brave and we've established for ourselves sovereignty. And, and here Israel is saying, well, time and time again, we've been foolish, but God's been good. Um, which is utterly appropriate for a nation who is defined fundamentally by their God rather than their own culture or, um, the individuals that make up their country. Um, right. And th- this Psalm really for a little more context for the reader, it's, it tracks like key moments in Israel's history, really from the Exodus narrative of Moses, uh, leading the people out of slavery in Egypt into, um, all the way up to the reign of the Kings, like King David and Solomon. And there's a foreshadowing, of, of something even more at the end. Uh, but, but we're going from Israel and slavery in Egypt to Israel with kings and a temple and this glorious capital in Jerusalem. And so it's, it's a, a story of prosperity in the midst of foolishness, which is marked by the mercy and faithfulness of God. Um, but with all that being said, it's a long Psalm. And so if you're listening, um, one that I think the most beneficial thing we do on this podcast week after week is we read God's word. And so if you're listening, you get to hear the word of God um, much more helpful than anything that I or any of the guests will be able to say from our own wisdom. Uh, and so even though this one is long uh, and with that context in mind of what it is, uh, want to hear, read, read it for us. Uh, and I hope it's a blessing to you. So Reed, would you read Psalm 78 for us? Yes. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 78. Tell the coming generation, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the young, the, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments." And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. 
He split rocks in the wilderness. He gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they still, they, they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the most high in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread to provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and they did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of the heavens. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When, they killed the, when he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their, their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor, labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led his people out like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the most high God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his power over to the sword 
and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rot. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well done. Whew. It's a long one. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for reading that. First, just to kind of go back to the the beginning of the psalm, uh, the first eight verses, really. I mean, first four verses, even more specifically, but the first eight verses give us um, a picture into why the psalm was written. Uh, and you you briefly mentioned uh, that before you read the psalm, but just as a reminder, do you want to kind of walk us through why the psalm was written? Yeah, of course. It 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 beautifully is a psalm uh, and a song written so that the people wouldn't forget who God is and what He has done for them and how they acted in response to that. But I love verse eight. Um, where it says, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. Um, it's really so, it, it's a song that they would sing so that they would um, choose to be better than their fathers were as far as, uh, as far as rebelling from God, that they would choose to remember God's steadfastness and his, the wonders of the miracles that he's performed on their behalf to save them uh, time and time again. Um, and that because of this deep salvation and love that God has has fought for and won on behalf of his people, that they would walk a different path than their fathers. Um, and there's a lot there that's super applicable to us who have been saved by Jesus now, uh, that we should not forget those things, forget what God has done in Christ, um, and therefore not to earn anything, but out of deep, humble gratitude, walk in righteousness. Um, so it's very much the same heart on purpose, <laughs> um, very much the same heart for the people of Israel who would sing this. Yeah. It, well, and I, I love verse eight too. And I think that that is, um, that concept of, of remembering the sins of our fathers so that we might not be like them. I think that's a concept that a lot of Americans and particularly white Americans are, are, are recognizing maybe for the first time right now, this concept of, Oh, like our fathers have, have treated and uh, utterly abandoned and abused our black neighbors. Um, and, and so we need to remember that and we need to see that yeah. so that we, we don't do the same. And I think, I think that it's, you know, the old saying that history repeats itself. Um, history only repeats itself when we forget it. Um, but when we don't, right. when we remember it, it, we are, we are less likely to repeat it. Um, and I think that that's really helpful. Uh, and so with that in mind that, 
that the psalm was written so that the people of Israel, so that God's people would remember how they've been unfaithful in the past, how their fathers were unfaithful, even in light of God being so good. Um, what do you think this psalm teaches us about who God is? Yeah, I think there's two ways to read this psalm, if we're honest. There's the way I think the Israelites really read it, which is look at how generous and merciful and patient God has been with us. Um, but I do think there's a part of us that needs to admit that there's some uncomfortable things that we read um, that the people sang about what God has done. Um, he, he was full of wrath. He was uh, killing those who were unrighteous um, in this psalm. We see that time and time again. And um, I think we might be tempted to believe what a lot of uh, what a lot of Christians might be tempted to believe, or uh, certainly non Christians believe this: that in the Old Testament, God was full of anger and wrath and malice, and um, was constantly angry and dealing out vengeance. And then in the New Testament, Jesus came and was compassionate and loving, and and nice. And the Father, God, the Father is this mean guy. Uh, who hates sin, and Jesus is the guy who comes and loves everybody. Um, but if we believe that, then what we're failing to recognize is that Jesus is fully God. So everything that Jesus, all the traits that Jesus personifies in his earthly ministry and currently as he rules and reigns uh, from the throne of heaven, those are all God's attributes. So everything God is in the Old Testament um, is is embodied in who Jesus is on earth and everything Jesus embodies in his values is embodied by the God of the Old Testament because they're the exact same thing. <laughs> they're the exact same person. Um, but, but part of the Trinity, the beautiful Trinity. Um, so Jesus on earth uh, hates sin. He's righteously angry about sin and against sin. And God in the Old Testament is absolutely loving and compassionate. And those two things are not in conflict with one another. In fact, they, they complement each other perfectly on the cross. Um, so the people of Israel could read this and celebrate and realize God hates sin. Um, and yet he has been so gracious and patient and loving towards us. And uh, we can fully read this and think, wow, God still hates sin, um, and by sending himself to die on our behalf, um, he hated sin no less, but loved us more, um, loved us in a way that would, that would save us. And then beyond all of that, the Holy Spirit has been sent, and it's the very same God as well, the same God who's full of compassion, love, unity, and mercy, and yet a burning hate for sin and evil and death and a yearning for righteousness. And we see that at play in our own walks, or in our own personal walks, um, as we both grow in humility, love, gentleness, kindness, as fruits of the Spirit, and hate our own sin and the sin of the world. Um, we grow in our hate for those things, our righteous anger against sin and injustice. Um, so I think that's at play here too. Like I think uh, there would be some uncomfort in singing the psalm as they kind of outlined all the ways that God has hated sin, but then some sober realization that actually God's been very patient and kind to us. And then again, it ends with this promise about King David, um, but we know that, that that promise is applied to the great true shepherd, Jesus, um, who would come again. So, um, so yeah, I think that is one of the major themes in the psalm. 
this this bouncing between how a patient, loving, kind God is merciful and how that's not in conflict with his his wrath against evil, sin, death, and injustice. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's helpful. There, I I think I've heard people say um, or suggest that that maybe like by the time God decided to become a man in Jesus, that he had had like this change of heart, right? Like that he had decided, oh, the way I'm doing things isn't working, and so I'll try a different way. Um, right. And and one, like, like we know that the Bible is a cohesive story about a singular God who, who ha- has never changed, right? And his plan has never changed. And I think what you were saying is really helpful that, that when, like, not only does Jesus not show that God has changed, he shows that God has always been the same. I mean, we could even look at, at these, at the history of Israel here in this Psalm and see the ways that, that all of it was pointing toward and leading up to it being fulfilled in Jesus. Like, right. We've got, uh, a God who has power over the seas to save his people in it. Like who is the one who calmed the seas, but Jesus, we have a God who, um, split, like who had water pour out of a rock for his people where the author of Hebrews that tells us that in fact, Jesus is the rock from which the water flows. We have Jesus yeah. who prepares a table for us in the wilderness of sin every week at the, mm. the table of communion. Um, feeding us the bread of angels. In fact, he is the bread of heaven. Um, We have, verse 31, I think is interesting. It says, the anger of God rose against them and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Like who is the strongest of Israel, but the Lord himself, who in God's wrath, God killed in the son of man. Like in Jesus's Mm. crucifixion, he is fulfilling verse 31, and it goes on and on, and it leads us to this place where we're promised this good shepherd at the end, this Davidic shepherd who will lead his people with a skillful hand. Um, And it's not because at some point God's people got better, right? Like, I think, like, that's the history here. It's not just that, like, it's not that, oh, well, now that God's people have they've gotten wise now that they've decided to be a little more obedient. Now that they're no longer rebelling against God, uh, he will lead them with a good shepherd. Uh, that's not the story at all, you know? And I, and I think we could be tempted to believe that too, that, Oh, well the salvation is dependent upon the fact that people changed and like, no, like this is pointing toward the good shepherd in Jesus Christ. And like, his ruling over his people with a skillful hand is preceded by the greatest act of rebellion and disobedience in the history of God's people when they killed God, right? Like, th- <laughs> yeah. like that's far worse than a rebelling against God in the wilderness. They put God to death on God a cross and yeah. he still rules over us with a skillful hand and a merciful hand. And wow. that man, that is beautiful. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, um, 
there's this sense of how prophetic this psalm really is when you when you draw out those things. Those are only a few things. Jesus actually quotes um, uh, verse two um, when he begins teaching in parables. He quotes verse two and says, "In Matthew, I believe, I will open my mouth in a parable and utter dark sayings from of old." Um, it, it's this. It's the very same God has been speaking in this way. Uh, for a long time. And so you're right. It's nothing new. Um, Jesus came to fulfill, not to change, um, to fulfill the call, not because of some reaction. Super beautiful. And then uh, I think this is something we talked a little bit about too. Like we have to remember again, this is not just the written word of God's people. It's the word of God. Um, And so there's a reality where, uh, and you were talking about this a little bit before we started, Cole, um, that we can't forget our history and God won't let us forget our history. Um, and that's individually. So there, there's great purpose in remembering our own stories and remembering the ways that God has been grateful or um, has been merciful that should make us grateful, right. but remembering the ways that God has been merciful in spite of our rebellions, our own personal rebellions. And then we can, we can look back at the history of the church and see how rebellious and foolish the church has been. Um, and yet God has not abandoned his bride. Um, he leads He leads the church today with a skillful hand and an upright heart. Um, and so there's a lot of, I think, cultural um, maybe doubt and distrust and uncertainty about the future of the church, but not biblically. There's no uncertainty about the church. Um, there's no uncertainty uncertainty about how God will and if God will lead his people with a skillful hand and upright heart. Yeah, that's good. And I, I think it's encouraging to be able to look back and say, okay, throughout the entire history of God's people, from the garden to the consummation of the church with the pouring out of the spirit at Pentecost and, and all through, you know, the ages that God's people has have consistently rebelled against him and he's consistently been faithful and established them. And that's encouraging for me because it means that like, like even if we mess up as the church individually and corporately, Mm-hmm. Like God's still going to be faithful. He's still going to establish his people for his glory. And and I think the beginning of the psalm gives me hope because the author writes with this hope that we can in fact learn. Like that we can get better, if you will. Yes. Right? Like not that we're gonna all of a sudden never rebel against God or never be foolish, but that we can learn from the sins of our past and grow and that like, it gives me a hope that the, that the church that our children inherit will be a little holier and a little more faithful than the church that we inherited. Um, and yeah, and that that's encouraging to me. Yeah, no, it's a great thought. And it's, it's one that I share and I'm hopeful for. (laughs) I hope that, um, that we can learn, from our father's sins, um, and avoid those mistakes. But, but you're right too, until Jesus comes back and leads us one-on-one physically, um, for eternity, then, then we, our lot is to, to repeat the cycle of sin, um, and be desperate for salvation. Um, 
but we're not a people without hope, and we've been given that salvation, and that's the glorious, uh, the glorious place we sit in history um, that I'm thankful for. Yeah, me too. I, I want to put you on spot on the spot with one final question. Um, sure. And that is, if there's if there's one portion of this psalm, whether it's a verse or kind of one of the stanzas, that you find um, particularly helpful um, for you, like that resonates with you in a certain way, uh, what would that be and how would you use that to encourage others? Um, yeah, I'll answer with two verses. Um, verse 35 and 38, um, because in between those, there is uh, another rebellion. <laughs> um, but uh, the first 135, but they flat, or I'm sorry, they remembered their God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. Um, so I think that's encouraging on the individual level because um, regardless of where you are in your own journey, in your own doubt, uh, there's hope for you and me to remember that God is our rock, our most high and our redeemer. Um, so it, it gives me this this picture of, of deep rebellion or doubt or struggling and like the people of Israel just being like, wait a second, God is our rock. We have a redeemer. Mm. Um, and then right after that, they're sinful and rebel in this, in this retelling, they flatter him with their mouths. So basically they say, yes, God will worship you. We, we believe we atone. And it, it says that God knew their hearts that they were lying. Um, (laughs) and even with that deceit, it says 38, yet he being compassionate atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. Uh, so even in the Old Testament, God was atoning for sin um, and fully and finally atoning for sin in the personal work of Jesus on the cross. Um, but we can, we can remember that God is our rock and our redeemer. And even when we fail after that, he is compassionate and has atoned for our iniquity um, and d- does not destroy us who are found who are found in Christ. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, it's pretty much in the middle. And I do think it's the climax of the, of the narrative where after that, we've got a whole much, a whole bunch more, uh, of the cycle, the same cycle of rebellion, et cetera, um, and patience and wrath towards evil and sin. Um, but right there is a reminder that we can remember who God is and we can remember that he's, uh, compassionate. Yeah. And has atoned for us. Yeah, that's good. I, verse 38 is really, really beautiful. Like one, the realization that that God doesn't ask or even think we are capable of atoning for our own sin. And so he's done it for us right. in Jesus. Like he has made a way to show compassion to a rebellious people. And then the the second part of that verse that you didn't even read is he restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. And, and that's beautiful in this, this history of God's people leading up to Jesus that over and over, he showed his anger. He showed how horrible rebellion was, how heinous sin was. Um, but he, he did restrain it, but he has no longer restrained it in that he has poured all the anger, all the wrath out upon the sun um, so that we can walk in confidence, right? Knowing that 
we're not going to be utterly destroyed because of our sin, but that he has atoned for us, that he is our redeemer, our yeah. most high God. Man, that's encouraging. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And so, Sojourn, if you're listening, would you remember that? Remember God, the rock, the redeemer, the most high, who has been compassionate and atoned for your iniquity. Um, the, the, the more mornings we wake up remembering that, uh, the more our church will grow in unity and love and care for one another, and the more that will be added to our number. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think both those things are true. Mm. Well, thanks, Reed. It's been a real pleasure to have you on.